0: This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's Community Access Media Organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello, and thank you for joining the programme today. We're going through a text titled Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, a commentary on the seven points of mind training by the Tibetan master Namkar Pal. This text shows how we can slowly transform our negative attitudes into positive, and in particular develop the aspiration at least to gain enlightenment for the sake of all beings, which in Buddhism is called aspirational bodhicitta. Once we have more than an aspiration in our mind and actually decide to do something about it, we become what is known as an engaged bodhisattva. For from that time on we have to behave in ways that continuously encourage and enhance our altruistic attitudes. Now talking about bodhicitta, and before going any further, let's set our motivation for joining the program today as we usually do. And as usual, let's make bodhicitta the basis of that motivation, that we may attain enlightenment so that we can benefit not only ourselves, but all living beings. Let's make that our motivation. Thank you. Now, as I mentioned before, bodhicitta has two aspects. First, aspirational, and following that, engaged. On www.bodhicitta.net, Jeffrey Hopkins translates a teaching on aspirational bodhicitta His Holiness the Dalai Lama gave at the Tibetan Cultural Center at Bloomington, Indiana, in July 1996. Seeing it has some relevance to both our motivation and the text we are following, let's hear what His Holiness has to say. He starts with, First of all, let me identify what the altruistic intention to become enlightened is. Our kind teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha, when he first taught the turning of the wheel of the Four Noble Truths, set forth a doctrine that has compassion as its root. So even in the scriptures of the so-called hearers, like the scriptures of the Theravada, there is mention of Shakyamuni prior to being enlightened when he was in Bodhgaya as a Bodhisattva. Then, with regard to the actual practices of a Bodhisattva in the scriptures of the hearers, there is a short description within the 37 harmonies for enlightenment and there is a slight mention of the six perfections. But the real emphasis on the practices of the Bodhisattva is to be found in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. In the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, what is explicitly taught are the teachings about emptiness. But there is a hidden level of meaning of the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, and this is indicated by the lists of phenomena that are empty of inherent existence. And within that, one can find the stages of the path. And in the Lolita Vistra Sutras, the Bodhisattva deeds are talked about extensively. His Holiness goes on, In Maitreya's Ornament for Clear Realization, there is a description of the altruistic intention to be enlightened or the mind of enlightenment endowed with two aspirations. The one is the aspiration to bring about others' welfare, and that condition induces the second aspiration, which is to gain enlightenment oneself. Now both of these aspirations one needs to practice. The development of the aspiration to bring about others' enlightenment is brought about by practice in two ways. One is through considering the switching of self and other, the equality of self and other, and then the switching of self and other. The other way is through reflecting on the seven quintessential instructions of cause and effect. The essence of this process is to realize that all other sentient beings as well as yourself are very similar in that everyone wants happiness and doesn't want suffering, and in that Suffering is removable. It can be removed. In addition, everyone has the right to remove suffering. Now, as you may have gathered, His Holiness is here talking about the method of exchanging self for others and the seven cause and effect method, otherwise known as six causes and one effect. We've covered these extensively in previous programs. In the first method, one first equalizes oneself with others, and then examines the disadvantages of self-cherishing and the advantages of cherishing others, and through this determines to exchange one's habitual putting oneself first for the habit of putting others first. In the Six Cause and One Effect method, one reflects that through countless lives one has had countless mothers. These have not always been the same being, so no being has not been one's mother. Then one reflects on the kindness of the mothers, develops the wish to repay that kindness, develops great love and great compassion, and takes the supreme responsibility to lead them to enlightenment, which leads to bodhicitta. So this is just a brief reminder of what His Holiness is talking about here. He goes on, But what is the difference between self and other? One self is only one, whereas others are limitless in number. And from another point of view, One's own happiness is related with others' happiness. Thus, if others are happy, automatically and naturally one's self is happy. If others suffer, one automatically and naturally suffers. For instance, if you come into a household where people are constantly arguing and they're constantly disturbed, even for just a little while, you will notice the pervasive discomfort in the household, in the family. And if you arrive in the household of a family that is staying with some measure of contentment and happiness, living together peacefully, you yourself will have a sense of comfort shortly after arriving in their house. Thus, in this way, others' happiness and suffering has a close relationship with your own happiness and suffering. And then, from the point of view of the Buddha's teaching, if you have an attitude of altruism, of benefiting others, so much will you benefit yourself, so much will you accumulate merit that helps yourself. For instance, if you engage in one single practice, such as a prayer or any other type of virtuous practice, if you do this with the motivation of obtaining a liberation from cyclic existence for yourself, or if you do that same activity with the motivation to obtain the omniscience of highest enlightenment to be of benefit to limitless sentient beings, then the difference in strength, the power of that virtue, is very great. Now His Holiness says here, The greatness of the difference lies in what we are seeking to accomplish and for whom we are seeking to accomplish it. Motivation for oneself only benefits one being, while a motivation focused on countless beings accomplishes the welfare of those countless beings. His Holiness says, Thus when one's field of motivation is the welfare of a limitless number of sentient beings, then the virtue accumulated through the practice is extremely vast. Thus, in the Great Vehicle, when it speaks about the accumulation of huge amounts of merit, that merit is achieved through the kindness of other sentient beings. Now, if you ask, how could it be feasible to conceive of everybody, of all sentient beings, as having this kindness, when some don't have a motivation to help others, and how could it possi- be possible that one would be conceiving them nevertheless to be kind? And the answer is that the valuing of other sentient beings is not dependent on their motivation. As Shantideva says in his Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, among the three refuges, the actual refuges are the true cessations of the obstructions and the paths to achieving those true cessations. Now those true cessations themselves or the Path Consciousness themselves, don't have any motivation to help you, but they provide great protection. Thus the valuing, the having a sense of cherishing or valuing of things, does not depend on their having the motivation to help you. Thus, from the perspective of practicing the Path, it is in dependence upon this value or kindness of the limitless number of sentient beings that it is possible to proceed ahead on the Path. Now, to paraphrase the last two noble truths that is the truth of liberation that there is an end to all our mental obstructions and all suffering and the truth that there is a path to achieve that these two noble truths are our real refuge liberation is what we are aiming for and the path is what we practice to achieve that aim but His Holiness points out that neither of these two have any intention to help us although they do give us enormous help and protection This proves that getting help does not depend on the motivation of whoever or whatever is helping us. Nevertheless, our helpers can be of great benefit and we should appreciate their kindness, never mind about their motivation. His Holiness continues, In terms of the ordinary state, also, most of our provisions, food, clothing and fame and so forth, come by way of others. It is in dependence upon them in terms of the resultant state also that comes by way of the value or the kindness of other sentient beings. That means we attain Buddhahood in depending on others. His Holiness continues, Thus it is said that it is in dependence upon the kindness of our fellow beings that we achieve even small pleasures and so forth within ordinary life, and it is in dependence upon others that the great achievement of Buddhahood and so forth is brought about. So it is through our fellow beings, it is in dependence upon them, that we achieve anything. Now the problem with those who are just seeking release from cyclic existence for themselves is that their lower or smaller motivation means that they are neglecting their fellow sentient beings. Thus they are falling into a self-centered solitary peace. His Holiness compares those who put their own happiness first with those who put others' happiness first. He says that the Buddha is always putting others first and working for their welfare, and that actually led him to Buddhahood. He could not have become a Buddha without that motivation and practice. Thus, if we want to achieve the same state, we also have to put others first and work for their benefit in the same way. So this is the main way that one trains in the development of altruism or otherism, His Holiness states and that covers the aspiration to be of greatest benefit to others. So then, what is the other aspiration, the aspiration to one's own enlightenment, His Holiness asks, and says, As Dajangyepa Singje, the Indian pundit, an important disciple of Nagarjuna, said, enlightenment is not something given to oneself from the outside. The causes of enlightenment are not possessed by somebody else. Rather, the very factors that make enlightenment possible are contained within oneself, this being the luminous and cognitive nature of the mind, and one needs to manifest this oneself and thereby manifest enlightenment oneself. As Nagarjuna himself said, through the extinguishment of contaminated karma, contaminated actions and affective emotions, there is a liberation. So then, what are contaminated actions and afflictive emotions? Contaminated actions are induced by afflictive emotions. Afflictive emotions are induced by improper mental activities. Improper mental activity is induced by the elaborations of the conception of inherent existence. Those elaborations of the conception of inherent existence are extinguished through emptiness, meaning through realizing emptiness. So basically what His Holiness is saying here is that the actions that keep samsara going come from our afflictive emotions, and that is emotions like attachment, aversion, pride, anger, and so on. He will go on to talk a bit more on the difference between afflictive emotions and non-afflictive emotions like loving-kindness, compassion, and so on, later. But now, he says, that afflictive emotions come from the wrong ways that we use our mind, including wrong ways of thinking, perceiving, and so on. He calls them improper, meaning that they lead to states and experiences we do not like, want or wish for. In his book, Daring Steps Towards Fearlessness, The Three Vehicles of Buddhism, Ringu Tulku Rinpoche demonstrates this quite nicely with a story about a spoiled princess. It goes like this. There's a story about a princess who had a small eye problem and that, that she felt was really bad. Being the king's daughter, She was rather spoiled and kept crying all the time. When the doctors wanted to apply medicine, she would invariably refuse any medical treatment and kept touching the sore spot on her eye. In this way, it became worse and worse, until finally the king proclaimed a large reward for whoever could cure his daughter. After some time, a man arrived who claimed to be a famous physician, but actually was not even a doctor. He declared that he could definitely cure the princess and was admitted to her chamber. After he had examined her, he exclaimed, Oh, I'm so sorry. What is it? the princess inquired. The doctor said, Well, there's nothing much wrong with your eye, but there is something else that's really serious. The princess was alarmed and asked, What on earth is so serious? He hesitated and said, It's really bad. I shouldn't tell you about it. And no matter how much she insisted, He refused to tell her, saying that he could not speak without the king's permission. Now when the king arrived, the doctor was still reluctant to reveal his findings. Finally the king commanded, Tell us what is wrong. Whatever it is, you have to tell us. At last the doctor said, Well, the eye will get better within a few days. That's no problem. The big problem is that the princess will grow a tail, which will become at least nine fathoms long. It may start growing very soon. If she can detect the first moment it appears, I might be able to prevent it from growing. Now at this news, everyone was deeply concerned. And the princess, what did she do? She stayed in bed day and night, directing all her attention to detecting when the tail might appear. Thus, after a few days, her eye got well. This shows how we usually react, says Ringu Tukurubuse. We focus on our little problem, and it becomes the center around which everything else revolves. So far, we've done this repeatedly, life after life. We think, my wishes, my interests, my likes and dislikes come first. And as long as we function on this basis, we will remain unchanged. Driven by our impulses of desire and rejection, we will travel the roads of samsara without finding a way out. As long as attachment and aversion are our sources of living and drive us onward, we cannot rest. Because of situations like this, His Holiness the Dalai Lama goes on to say that we need to know the afflictive emotions and their faults in fine detail. But the one we need to understand the best is the one that is the foundation of all other afflictive emotions. And that is ignorance, which leads to the elaborations of the conception of inherent existence. All four schools of Buddhist tenets agree that ignorance is the basis from which all of the other afflictive emotions are produced, His Holiness says. But the four schools present in great detail different opinions on just what ignorance is, and these opinions need to be known. Thus it is necessary to know in detail what the ignorance is that serves as the root of the other afflictive emotions. It's not just sufficient to think, oh, ignorance is the root of the afflictive emotions, one needs to know and identify well what this ignorance is. To get a clear understanding of what ignorance is, it is important to get an idea of how phenomena actually do exist. One cannot be just satisfied with how things appear. Rather, one needs to have an idea of how they actually exist. And when one has some idea of how actually things do exist, then you can understand that ignorance is a matter of conceiving phenomena to exist in the opposite way to which they actually are. Thus, it is very important to delineate how phenomena actually abide. So then, within the great vehicle systems of tenants, there is the Chittimatra, or mind-only system, and the Majjhamaika, or middle-way system. In the mind-only system, a type of reasoning is used to analyse phenomena that appear to be external objects, and through that reasoning to determine that these externally appearing objects really are not made up of building blocks of external particles. Rather, they are appearances within the entity of internal consciousness. Thus, they hold that the way phenomena actually abide is as of the same entity as internal mind, that they don't exist if they appear as external objects. Thus, the mind-only system sets forth an emptiness of a difference of entity of subject and object. Now Chandra Kirti, the name of the proponent of the Madhyamaka or the Middle Way school, answers them by saying: Just as you have searched with reason to investigate external objects, so one should search and investigate the nature of mind, and that under such analysis, one won't find some concretely existing mind also. Thus, both external phenomena and internal phenomena are similar in that when they are analysed in such a way, they are not found. But this does not mean that they don't exist. Thus, Chandrakirti asserts external objects. What does this non-finding upon searching analytically indicate? It indicates that phenomena do not exist objectively in their own right. So then, how do phenomena, that is to say objects and subjects, actually exist? They exist imputedly, designatedly. The source for this position is in the writings of Nagarjuna himself who said that whatever is a dependent arising is necessarily empty and there is no phenomenon that is not a dependent arising. And everything is posited in dependence upon other factors. Because phenomena are imputed in dependence upon other factors they are neither non-existent or inherently existent. But rather, they exist in a middle way, and this is the middle path. Thus the true mode of abiding of phenomena, the true way that phenomena exist, the true mode of existence, is that they are imputedly existent, they are dependently and designatedly existent. Now what His Holiness is saying here is that everything is made up of other things, and the labels that the mind puts onto it. Does a chair exist independently and from its own side, as if it was always a chair, no matter who or what is observing it? Now we might think so, but when we analyze the chair, we see that it's just a combination of bits of wood, metal and so on, as well as the causes and conditions that made those bits combine in that particular way. And then a consciousness comes along and labels the resulting combination chair, And that is how the chair exists, as something arising or coming into existence depending on other factors, such as causes, conditions and parts, and the mind that labels, a dependent arising. In this way it is imputed to exist, it does not exist inherently or independently. But that is not how it appears to exist when we look at it without any analysis. Then it appears as if it exists independently or, as we say, from its own side. As His Holiness says, the phenomena that we internally experience and the external phenomena that we experience, we have to admit, don't appear to be imputedly existent. They appear to be existent from their own side in their own right. Inside our minds, we have a strong sense that these internal phenomena and external phenomena indeed exist the way they appear. Now this is what is called the misconception of inherent existence or the misconception of true existence. Thus, one should be contemplating or reflecting on the fact that it is within such a misapprehension that we are generating afflictive emotions and are being drawn into contaminated actions. What we are doing is misconceiving the nature of ourselves and others, self and others appearing to inherently exist, whereas they don't but we go right on along with the appearance of self and other as existing in their own right and in dependence on that generate afflictive emotions that themselves induce contaminated karmas. Thus, what is this ignorance that we keep talking about? It is the assent to the appearance of beings in the environment as if they exist the way they appear than to how they appear. That's ignorance and that type of assent to this false appearance as if objects exist in their own right induces desire and hatred. That desire and hatred in turn induce contaminated actions. Thus, the ignorance that is assenting to the appearance of objects as inherently existent does not have a valid foundation, does not have a foundation certified by valid cognition. Whereas, the realization that phenomena do not exist this way does have a certification by valid cognition. Thus, the basis, the foundation of ignorance, is not firm. No matter how powerful it has been over time, its foundation is not firm. Whereas the foundation of wisdom is firm, it is in this sense that the defilements can be extinguished. So His Holiness is saying here, that by going with the way things appear to us as having real independent existence, we develop desire and hatred, or if you like, attachment and aversion. Seeing ourselves and other things and beings having real independent existence leads to liking some and disliking others. For example, seeing ourselves, cats and cockroaches, as real and independent beings, we tend to develop a liking for kitties, and a hatred of roaches. Now you may say this is social or cultural conditioning, but go deeper and you find at the root a strong sense of an independent me and a belief that cats intrinsically exist as cute and cockroaches as intrinsically foul. But if we analyze and try to find the independent I, cat or cockroach, we cannot find any of them, so that we can point to it and say, ah, this is the essential me or the essential cat, or the essential cockroach. Of course, we cannot say that the eye, the cat and the cockroach do not exist at all. That would be absurd, because we can see, hear, smell, touch and even taste them. We can stroke the kitty and remove the cockroach from our house. So they must exist somehow. Unfortunately, they just do not exist the way we think they do, and that is the problem but it's not an insurmountable problem. His Holiness says that wisdom is the counterforce to this ignorance. He says, And it is by the way of the fact that the wisdom realizing selflessness, the absence of inherent existence, is a quality of mind. That is to say, it is a quality that depends on the luminous and knowing nature of the mind that it is said to be stable. Since it is stable, it can be familiarized with greater and greater clarity. This is the way that you can think about that line mentioned earlier, that afflictive emotions which depend on the conceptual elaborations of inherent existence are ceased by emptiness or are ceased in emptiness. His Holiness goes on, Thus the realization of the emptiness of inherent existence, the realization of the actual nature of phenomena, is the reason why the defilements can be removed and once the defilements can be removed then liberation from cyclic existence is possible and also the predispositions that are established by the misconception that phenomena exist in their own right these predispositions that cause phenomena to appear in this false aspect and prevent knowledge of all phenomena these predispositions also are suitable for removal and can be removed. Since the mind naturally has an essence or nature of being luminous and knowing, once these obstructions are removed, then the mind can know everything. Thus, one can understand that full enlightenment is possible, and that it would also be possible within one's own continuum to attain this. And this is how, by contemplating this way, you can gain the aspiration to gain your own enlightenment. That is His Holiness the Dalai Lama covering the two aspirations to benefit others as much as possible and to attain enlightenment to do so. And that is where we have to leave the program today for our time is up. Thank you for joining us and I hope you will tune in again next week. Please dedicate the positive potential from the program to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings everywhere. Thank you and goodbye.